of iBuzz, the animal care and welfare podcast by Animal Concepts and the Practical Animal Welfare Science, the PAUSE platform. I'm your host, Serena Brando, and today I am delighted to welcome Jay Pratt, who is the Deputy Director of Life Science and Facilities at the Utica Zoo in New York State in the U.S. Welcome, Jay. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yes, looking forward we always like to kick off podcasts with like a short story of you connecting with an animal, because that's often how we also roll into these jobs, our connections, early connections to animals. So love to hear a story. Oh, early connections. Goodness. I'm trying to think about something, you know, early on that might've been like more formative in my career. It's, um, it's funny. Cause when I was, when I was a young kid, I was in a little tiny town in Southern Alberta, um, there were no zoos nearby. If you loved animals, the only thing you could do was probably be a veterinarian. And I just, I always loved animals. Like I just, I watched National Geographic all the time. I wanted to um, spend time around them. I wanted to get closer to them and learn more about them. It's funny. So here's one. So in high school, we ha- went on a high school camp and we were actually sent to Waterton Park. So my entire grade, um, we went out to this like, you know, camp. It was in the mountains alongside the lake. It was very beautiful. Um, And they had all the activities planned for us. Um, My father was a chaperone. He was also a teacher. There were several others there. And I remember where all the other kids were, they wanted to go and they wanted to canoe and they were doing archery and all these different things. I was just hanging around out in the trees, out behind and just watching the water and watching the animals. and. I remember it happening um, that just this doe, a female deer, she came slowly, gently walking out of the, you know, the trees and kind of looked at me and was very curious. And I reached down and I pulled some grass up that was nearby. And I remember just, you know, leaning forward and talking very softly to her. Even then I knew how to read body language and, you know, uh, guide myself accordingly. And I remember I was just sitting here with this wild deer eating grass from my hand. And I didn't think anything of it. For me, I was like smiling and grinning and I was happy. And then all of a sudden I heard some noise behind me and the deer popped up her head and looked and took one more bite and then she ran away. And my father was standing on the back deck of the the camp house with another teacher and they were just staring at me. And I looked at them and I I remember thinking, what? And they couldn't believe that I was just hanging out back by myself making friends with wildlife. Um, it was just, they, they didn't know what to make of the situation. And I just took it as something that, you know, was normal uh, for me. And that's kind of then how I shaped the rest of my life. Um, really just learning how to read animal behavior, chart mine accordingly. I think it really helped me succeed as a trainer. Um, understand that every animal is an individual and has their own personality and outlook on the world. And that's, that ended up shaping the rest of my life. That's really wonderful. Yeah. I was thinking about how talking about, you know, you have a long career in animal training of all kinds, and that's, that's a very, very, you know, amazing story. And, um, and indeed people looking at that going like, what, what just happened there? And, uh, and for you, it was like, of course this happened. Uh, it is amazing. Yeah, <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> that is wonderful. So perhaps, you know, we're going to talk about a lot of things today, but perhaps you could talk to us a little bit more about like animal training. And, you know, you, you talked about obviously observing animals and behavior, their personalities, and then also adjusting accordingly. Can you talk to us a little bit more about animal training and how you've used it and species trained? So it's funny when I, when I first started, you know, working in the field, I actually, I was, I was one of the, those super smart kids that, you know, graduated with all of the, you know, the academic honors. And so of course, especially in a small town, you need to be a doctor or a lawyer. And I thought, you know what, I'll go, I'll do environmental law at a university. I mean, at least in my mind, I didn't know anything. I sounded like it might be something to do with animals or nature or whatever else. 
So I was in Edmonton, Alberta, and I was going to the University of Alberta and I was going to get my law degree. And then it was just happenstance. I ended up completely derailed. A friend of mine called and says, you know what? We know you love big cats. Um, tigers at the time were always my favorite animal. And there's this place outside the city that has all these big cats. You should see it. So on one Saturday, I remember driving up there and um, talked to the guy that was working at the place and walked around the place. Um, there were cheetahs, there were tigers. And, you know, looking back, it is exactly the road type of roadside zoo that I would be trying to close down now. I didn't know then, but what I did know was that I wanted to work around the animals. And I started volunteering within a month. I was working there. Not long after that, I was basically, basically helping run the place. And what I learned early on is that what people would do, and I mean, we've all seen this at some point, old school animal management was use noise, use restraint, use force, use water, all these things to get animals to do what we wanted, as opposed to reading their behavior and then shaping that behavior um, and encouraging them to make the choices. And so then it ended up with a rewarding scenario. And I was, when I switched my degree, because once I realized what I wanted to do, it was literally an epiphany. It was like, the, you know, the clouds open, the choir of angels and like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do with my life. Um, I realized very quickly that I can also read behavior really well and shape behavior. And a lot of it was with my own actions. If I didn't get too close, the animal wouldn't move away. If I did move a little closer, they might move in the direction I wanted to, where then I could reward them on the other side. So I just started putting into practice what I was learning through behavioral psychology and zoology in, uh, in my uh, first university degree. And I really found that it was something I was very good at. And so when I actually uh, had left to train animals for the film industry for a while, where I started honing some of my abilities, but it was really when I got to Dallas and I started working at the, uh, the Dallas Zoo at the ExxonMobil Tiger Habitat, I'd had this history of training and background, but I'd never really managed a program. And once I got involved with that, where I could like lay the ground rules, I could start setting out a positive reinforcement plan for these cats and also the primates that were under our care. Um, I found that's really where I began to thrive was figuring out what, what are our goals? What do I, what would I like them to do? How do I encourage them to participate in it? And at the same time, we would do training demonstrations, have them participate in their medical care. And that was actually one of my first papers was uh, training three Indo-Chinese tigers from scratch. It was actually a paper and a presentation for the uh, American Association of Zookeepers. And that was sort of what started me down this whole training line. Um, then I switched to giant pandas uh, in Atlanta. I went there and uh, started working with and helping manage that program. That got me invited to China where I was able to go to the Chengdu giant panda uh, research base for uh, research and breeding. And I spent a month there teaching them training and training opportunities to help them manage their panda collection. And it really became what I was known for. And I think that is that understanding. Some people called it, call it whispering, you know, like horse whisperers and that. We know it's just really fine-tuned paying attention to details and being able to automatically adjust your behavior in response. And it can be taught, but it's really challenging because it requires that attention to detail, that response to gut feeling. But that's what I'm good at. And that's what I try to share with people. But along the way, I learned that, you know, it's up to us that we get to make their lives better, whether it's through the power of rewards, through operant conditioning and helping animals participate in their own care. That spread into more of what, you know, you're more familiar with and have been doing for as many years as I have as well as now the animal welfare piece because this is one of the tools we have along with rich enrichment, along with exhibit design, along with just overall program management for helping understand each individual animal's needs, their well-being, and helping to improve their welfare. So it's been this whole spectrum, but it really started off with me at this really rundown roadside zoo, learning that my behavior could shape the animal's behavior in a positive way. Yes, wonderful. And actually, quite a few people on these podcasts have talked about, you know, where they grew up and also what they thought, you know, in what way could they become connected to animals or work with animals. And of course, a veterinarian was a very kind of obvious route, uh, but not necessarily, you know, seeing 
in what other ways? And you mentioned, you know, something with nature and, and environmental law. And I love how you use the word derail uh, because, you know, usually that's not a good thing. But here, actually, I think it's it's uh, it's great that you, you know, actually, uh, you know, derailed. What's a good other word for that in English? It doesn't come to me now, but actually you jumped onto another track. And that clearly has given you, you know, lots of, you know, opportunities and, and in turn, lots of opportunities for organizations and animals to benefit. And, you know, you do quite a lot of work also as a consultant. So before we uh, go further into Utica Zoo and what you're doing there and the bear care group and other topics, perhaps you, you mentioned briefly just now about, you know, the zoos that you're trying to close down, roadside zoos and being a voice for animals. Perhaps you could talk a little bit about uh, that sort of work that you're doing right now. So that it, so it sounds a little harsh, um, but, you know, we read a lot about, especially in today's culture and, you know, climate where people are really tuned into the welfare of animals. And especially with social media being rampant, anything that everything is up for grabs and for public consumption. And so then, of course, when the pandemic hits and the Tiger King made its debut and people that made a living off of true exploitation of animals, you know, kind of came to the fore. And I've been like, you know, working with um, some of uh, really well-known groups uh, around the world. I've worked with um, HSUS. I've worked with PETA. I've consulted with OSHA here in the United States, the, the USDA. Um, and usually the consulting started off with, well, how do you feel that, you know, this animal is doing, or what do you think about this situation? And so I started off like, you know, providing my opinion, and then that turned into writing declarations and statements to try and help do something about it. And then it turned into participating in um, investigations and litigation, where most of the time, these organizations have reached out to facilities that are providing poor care or lack of appropriate care to animals. And they're in it for money, for fame, for all the different kinds of variables. And they, they don't want to hear it. They're, they're doing fine. We know what we're doing. We've always done it this way. Stick your nose somewhere else. And so the overtures of we'd like to help you, we would like to help the animals are usually generally rebuffed. And then after that is when it's generally followed up with many of these groups by pressure or litigation. Um, we have successfully used the Endangered Species Act um, to win a couple of cases to get endangered species removed from terrible chances uh, in some of the cases. Um, we have worked with nuisance acts and animal cruelty laws in various regions and states and other types to either remove animals that are not for properly or in at least so far uh, to facilities we've managed to get, um, uh, get them shut. One of those was Dade City's Wild Things in Florida, if anybody looks that up or Googles that case. And the other was one of the big ones from the Tiger King, and that was Tim Stark in Wildlife in Need. Um, and that was one where I really was impelled to be involved because of a video that's all still viewable of him manhandling and basically abusing a poor bear cub. And that's what really, really got me involved. Um, the trust was there because this is such a different thing for me. Because normally in, you know, my spheres in the zoo world, particularly in the accredited zoo world, there's not a lot of overlap with sanctuaries and with some of these animal welfare groups, even global groups. And it was actually Elsa Polson, I know we'll get there to talk to her, who had been doing some work because she was very nonpartisan. She would work with anybody if it helped bears. And she had me uh, work on and help continue some of his, her work uh, towards the end of things. And she introduced me to people that she had an inherent trust for and so it got my foot in the door in a world that I now saw and had a whole new viewpoint on. So now I've become this expert federal witness and this consultant that is trying to help all these individuals, groups, and organizations that are really working hard to try and improve the lives of animals, whether they're in facilities that can be improved if people are willing to work with and listen, um, or if they're not, and they're just going to continue doing what they're doing, then I will help those that are trying to fix the situation sometimes permanently. 
Yes, wonderful. And it's um, like you mentioned, you know, there's not always uh, or often an overlap between organiza different organizations or zoos and aquariums like you and I work with. But of course, we are all ultimately very much dedicated to animal welfare, right? So it's really wonderful when we can work together to and having a, a, a non-political stance in that sense is that all animals, wherever in whatever system they find themselves, they need help and they need to get out of bad places, right? And what can we Correct. do together, you know, focusing on what unites us to make a difference for those animals wherever they are. So very glad you're doing that. And yes, we definitely are going to uh, talk more about Elsa Pulsa and about bears. But before we go uh, and dive deeper into that, can you talk a little bit more about, you know, how you got into the zoo world? A lot of people listening to these podcasts, they are aspiring to get into this work. So perhaps you can talk a little bit how you started in the field and, you know, maybe some nuggets for them to consider and, and where you have worked and, and where you are now. So for me, again, I, on my it was accidental. Um, I didn't ever think that I would be doing this. I didn't even know it was a possibility. I know you mentioned being a veterinarian. So I remember in high school as well, I got a shadow day and I chose to go and shadow a veterinarian thinking, oh my God, it'd be amazing. And I realized very quickly that wasn't what I wanted to do. I didn't want to only deal with like, you know, sick animals. And I remember that day, I'll never forget it. Um, there was a dog that came in at the end of the day. It was very old. It was having some health problems. It wasn't my dog. I had never met the dog. I didn't know the family and the dog had to be, you know, it was humanely euthanized. It was time. And I was devastated. I'd never met the animal on that dog. And I, and it still struck me to the core. And I thought, I can't do this. This isn't what I can do with my life. And then that's why I never looked at veterinarian as an option. And I started looking at these other things. So when I, I did sort of get sidetracked out of my and then derailed out of my uh, like aspiring law career, which really wasn't that aspiring. But I started volunteering at this, you know, uh, roadside zoo, this game farm, and just realized, even though it was unbelievably difficult work and horrible weather conditions and whatever else, it was still what I wanted to do because I was making a difference for these animals. And I got to talk to people and teach people at the same time. And so that was when I shifted my degrees to zoology and uh, behavioral psychology, and then just started like, you know, altering and changing my education so that it adapted what was my first love, um, which was animals since I was a little kid. And now I was actually living that dream. And it was challenging. Um, this animal care field, it's not ever going to pay a lot of money, um, but you can be clever about it and find, you know, kind of side things to do. It's about fulfillment. And so I stuck through it, through you know, the years of like, you know, lack of pay um, that, you know, uh, friends with the same amount of schooling and a technical job were making, you know, five to 10 times as much money as me, but I was happy with what I was doing. I felt I was making a difference. And then my second degree, my master's degree, um, you know, was in zoo and aquarium leadership. Uh, it was through the AZA uh, program through George Mason University, but all along I was learning every single day. And then I would figure out what it was that I loved to do the most and then when it was time to grow, it wasn't ever like, well, I'm, I've got to leave. I want to quit this job. It was like, I want to do more. And that's when I would look for other opportunities. And so if you actually look at my history, each move moved me sometimes a step up in leadership, but sometimes it led me to more opportunities. So for example, moving from the tiger uh, uh, career that I had to pandas was a lateral move for you know, status but I was managing giant pandas and all the research that went with that. And as a result, I got to go to China and do some work over there. So it was an opportunity that let me do more. It's how I also treat my consulting. It's how I treat my dog rescues. It's how I treat, you know, the bear care group. And so, I mean, while I kind of took this really weird route that I just really fought to get to where I was and look for roads that would get me where I wanted to go. Um, there are things that really will help um, volunteering. Even if it's, you don't have a zoo nearby, find an animal rehab, find uh, the local dog shelter and walk dogs. Start really getting that in and figuring out what it is that you like to do. I did train animals for about a year and a half. That was not what I wanted to do any more than being a veterinarian. I wanted to be able to shape the animal's lives in a positive way every day and long-term planning on how can I always make their lives better. 
So figuring out what it is that you're not only good at, but what you love to do and look for those opportunities. There's, we're really lucky now. There are a lot of schools um, around the world, um, even here in the United States, that teach, for example, they have exotic animal training and management programs. I know the Santa Fe Community College in Florida and uh, Moore Park Community uh, College in California, I think there are a few others, have courses um, and uh, certificates of study dedicated to exotic animal care and management. So I think there's more opportunities now to also be able to get into the, the field. Interning, looking for internships at zoos and figuring out what it is that you'd like to do and if it really is something for you. Because a lot of people get in there and figure out that, you know, doing the dirty work that comes with animal care is really not for them. But then others take that. A couple of my students from one of my classes, um, I, I teach my own class at the university where I'm adjunct professor. And a couple of my students came and they started interning at the zoo in different departments. And they both realized keeper work wasn't necessarily what they wanted to do, but moved on started pursuing anthropology degrees, and now they're out there doing this amazing like research and leading some of the field of like, you know, uh, primate anthropology and how it relates to, you know, conservation and the like. So it was, it's amazing to have been able to inspire it, but see that just because you're dipping your toe in the water of the zoo world, it's not necessarily 100%, you know, for everybody, but you don't know unless you try. And then once you get in, you realize in the zoos, there's education, there's planning, there's maintenance, there's exhibit design. There's so many things that you can do to still benefit zoos, animals, um, you know, conservation, even like what you're doing, um, being able to influence people to really shape how people are looking at, you know, the world and our fields um, where you don't always have to be in there doing it every single day, but really testing it out, trying it out and looking for those volunteer schooling, internship opportunities, and then getting your foot in the door somewhere and then just following that through. I mean, those are, it's kind of what I did in various stages spread out over 30 years. And it's gotten me to a place where I'm really, really happy. And this is what I want to be doing. So it took a long time and I learned a lot. And every step was absolutely necessary to build the foundation for the next one. Yes. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And I think what is really important is what, you know, like you say, trying things out what you want to do and also finding out what you don't want to do and also very much what you can do. Uh, you might want to do things, but you maybe cannot do it. So there's some jobs out there, which, you know, I look at them and I go, that is just amazing. Like, you know, in conservation, these anti-poaching units, people that are on the front line protecting animals. I think it is amazing. I really, really have such respect but I, I couldn't do it, even if, you know, I, I think, and, and that's really good, um, you know, to find out, like you said, and the example that you gave with the veterinarian and um, really finding out what is it that you may, and of course we can train for things and we can get lots of skills, but is this something that really resonates and attunes with who I am? Um, so that's, that's really valuable information. And again, you know, how you say also, laterally moving, lots of different opportunities and vertical. Um, so now, you know, where we have uh, the derailing and the train and, you know, now I'm, I'm having all kinds of images of, of roller coasters, but also the slow, <laughs> you know, the, the slow, the slow paths and multiple, you know, paths going parallel or crossing each other. Um, because that's really, you know, the things that you talked about over 30 years and all building to, to really valuable background. And perhaps you can talk to us a little bit more about your recent move and the work that you now do at Utica Zoo. So um, when I was, I was in uh, Omaha for 11 years at the Omaha's Henry Dorley Zoo, I was the behavioral husbandry and welfare manager, which I love. Um, I really enjoyed it. I had such a good team, particularly the other curators that I love to work with. And I felt like I was really able to make a difference. But then it's, it's funny because the last couple of years, I started getting calls um, from headhunters, from recruiters that based on all my work, sometimes my consulting, uh, sometimes my work with the bear care group, sometimes my papers and my, my conferences, that people started looking at me and asking if I wanted to take that next step. So after a couple of like, you know, forays into that and interviews, I started like looking at myself and saying, you know, is it time to be able to make 
you know, this change again. And there were some other things, you know, in my life and at the, at, at my previous position that I wanted to be able to change, but where it was, I was unable to influence. And so I thought, you know what, maybe now's the time to look for a new opportunity. And so I'm a small town guy at heart. Um, and so like when uh, the opportunity in Utica came up, I actually interviewed for it once before and then COVID hit and there was any number of things. Um, and then when they re-advertised for it this past year and I uh, reapplied, they remembered me and we went through the whole application process and it was really, really positive. Um, I came out you know, to visit, the in-person went really well. And even in the interview, I felt a sense of value and it really resonated with me. So here's this nice little zoo, had recently been accredited, an executive director that's very dedicated and passionate and a team that's the same way that really just wants to be able to take that next step. And that's what I wanted to be able to do was really work at not only helping the animals, but developing and helping the team to get them through those steps we just talked about. Um, and so the original position was director of animal care, conservation and education. So all those areas. Once I got here, I worked remotely for a, a couple of months while I was planning the move, which moving halfway across uh, the United States was definitely an experience I'd care not to repeat, but I was lucky. Uh, found a lovely house with uh, for my partner, my four dogs, my cat and I. Um, my mom was involved. She was able to help get us moved. My family was hugely supportive all around. Um, it was rough leaving, you know, my team and my friends back in Omaha, but I was ready for that change. And since getting here, just being able to help provide some new structure and some direction, um, work with USDA, with AZA and all these things to really help chart and start developing a new path forward for the zoo. Um, the executive director, Andrea Heath, was really excited. I've got a great uh, colleague uh, doing the administrative side of things, Carrie we're really helping kind of try to break some new train and ground for the zoo. And the staff here are all so supportive. There's no foot dragging, there's no fighting, there's no arguing. They want to learn, they want to do more. So it's been such a great environment. And I developed such a really excellent working relationship with uh, the facilities and the maintenance team. Um, our superintendent, Gary, was, was really a, a great guy as well. And just because of that relationship and then watching how the structure I was building was so quickly affecting the rest of the zoo, um, Andrea restructured and uh, Carrie and I were made deputy directors. And so I have uh, all of the life sciences, so still animal care, conservation, education, veterinary care, nutrition, all of those. And then I was added to facilities and maintenance. So it's a lot. Um, it's a lot of responsibility, even for a smaller facility. Um, it's a giant scope, but I'm applying kind of the same brush and the structures across the board. I've got some really great people and all of them are so supportive and they're just, they're all on board. It's great. And so I get all these new ideas and now my biggest problem is just patience. Um, wanting to be able to accomplish and achieve all these things and just making sure again, we're laying that, that, but it's, it's been really wonderful. And so uh, the changes have been a lot. They've been also kind of surprising along the way, but I'm really, really glad that I made this decision because I feel like I'm going to be able to affect more people, more animals, even the community. This is another zoo, Omaha, the community supported the zoo very deeply. And that was something I appreciated. And here, there are a lot more zoos and facilities in New York. Um, accredited and non. But even with that, Utica is so supportive of this zoo. Um, the community rallies behind it. We had a great Halloween event the other night and then for the kids this weekend that was really, really popular. We got great feedback. You can just feel how important it is. And so I really want to be that step for the, the community as well. Um, I'm actually tomorrow night at uh, the Utica College about uh, careers uh, in the field and, you know, sort of this, how the steps we've taken to actually get there to help, you know, students that want to learn. Um, I'm going to be working with the Rotary moving forward. Uh, I'm already going to be adjunct at the college here. So really how I can help the community and help the zoo take that next step and just be the, that jewel that it really can be for all of the people here so they love it even more. That's what I'm working on and that's what I'm really excited about. Wonderful. That really sounds, you know, vibrant. And, you know, you have already used these words quite a bit, you know, making a difference, value, support, connection. You know, that's just, uh, I look forward to following the, the Utica Zoo and, and everything that will be happening. So, and earlier in the podcast, you mentioned uh, bears and the bear cub. 
And so perhaps we can um, shift from the zoo that you are now there and, and talk more generally about bears or your experience with bears and, and your involvement with the bear care group and, and how it was founded. So it's interesting. So ever since I was like little, 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 like five, six years old and could have posters on my wall. On one wall, I had this beautiful picture of a tiger. I can still picture it. On the other wall, there was a picture of Wonder Woman. We love Linda Carter. Um, that might have shaped other aspects of my life, but um, I've always been a big cat person. Um, I love tigers. And then over years, the social aspect, and I've worked with lions so much, they might have nudged up to the front. But through all this, I've really been good with all of the other carnivores. And I started getting lucky enough through my various jobs that as of now, I am one of the few people, I don't actually know anybody else that has done it short of Elsa Bolson, but I have cared for and taken care of all eight extant species of bears. And it's one of those things that while cats may have my first love, I love bears. Um, they're so clever learning like all about their history and that. So they've always been that sort of part of me. And then when, of course, when I had the opportunity to work with the pandas so closely, they were the last species uh, to add to my roster. I got really close over five years uh, working in Atlanta with uh, Lun Lun and Yong Yong. I was uh, there when Melon, our first cub was born. And that just, it's, they always had a place in my heart. So years ago, um, when I left the film industry and was getting back into zoos, I was a seasonal worker for a while at the Calgary Zoo. And there were a couple of um, keepers uh, that I met. Lori McGivern was one of them and Elsa Polson was the other. And I met several of others. Um, there were some interesting issues, you know, in that zoo, there was, it was a union structure and there was a lot of competition, but out of all my week of working, every time I went to work with either Lori, and that was usually in, uh, you know, the Australian nocturnal building or Elsa, those were my favorites because I had a half a day with them. And while they both had really high standards and they were a little bit tougher personalities and tougher nuts to crack, I earned their respect by just having really good standards, being willing to listen, learn, and being a hard worker. And they had so much to teach me um, that I just, I just absorbed it all. I got along very well with them. And then I ended up um, moving on. I actually uh, came down to the United States, just there were more opportunities for a permanent full-time position. Um, and I hadn't kept in as touch uh, with Elsa near as much. I knew some of her work. I knew she then moved to Detroit later on and then she switched to her own consulting. Um, but it was a few, several years ago that I was first approached uh, by Elsa and another individual. They were hosting a bear event. It was B-I-E-Z. I couldn't even tell you right now what that's supposed to stand for. And it was going to be in California. And they asked me if I would come and do the training piece. And I was so excited because I hadn't talked to Elsa in such a long time. So planned it out, went, you know, did the whole, my whole training workshop and piece. And Elsa and I really, really reconnected. And there were a series of events at that conference that led us to talk about forming and making our own nonprofit. And that was actually with the support of several other people that were there and then have stuck with us either as board members or supporters and advisors this whole time. That was the beginning and the birth of the bear care. And so um, this is, it's just where I really, I, I had my foot in the door. I was one of the founders now, and I was going to focus on the training and of course uh, the behavior piece of things. Cause the same thing we all know, you can train a goldfish and you can train a polar bear and you do it the exact same way. Learning is learning. I was, a, I'm a very good bear trainer because I really respond well to their dynamic personalities, their intelligence, um, how they respond to things. I just get them. And so having had so many years working with them, it was a wonderful opportunity to then be able to kind of, you know, share that with others. Um, so I've been, a, I've been a bear keeper throughout most of my career. Um, and now, you know, I've fallen into the role where I can be like, you know, a, a welfare consultant, a bear teacher, a husbandry, you know, leader and manager. And that's been around the world. So not only while I've taken care, care of bears, mostly here in the United States and Canada, had the opportunity to work in China with the panda base there for a month. Um, now I've been able to take what I've learned in that experience and apply it and help people around the world and huge organizations um, like Animals Asia. I love Jill Robinson. And then Wildlife SOS with Kartik and Gita, um, with the, where they're dealing with, um, Jill's dealing with the, the bear vial issue in China and um, 
Vietnam, and of course in India, Nepal surrounding areas, you've got Kartik and Gita and Wildlife SOS, not only helping bears from the dancing bear trade, but then so many other species as well. And really being able to take that background and everything from my keeper skills, my training skills, my enrichment welfare knowledge, natural history, and help people apply it to now help bears have better lives around the world. And all just because, you know what, I love bears and I love taking care of them. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I, you know, listening, I, I was thinking about, um, I've only met Elsa Polsa once and I invited her for an environmental enrichment for carnivores, specifically um, a seminar, which was hosted by the artist zoo. And it's um, already 10 and a half years ago. And, um, but, you know, I've been really inspired by her and seeing how she was interacting with some of the bears that she was meeting at various zoos and also, you know, her books and her writing. And perhaps you can talk a little bit more about Elsa Palsa and the establishment of the bear care group and, and what does this group do? So Elsa, oh, she has, will, will always be, she's a mentor and she will always be one of my favorite people. It's still hard to talk about um about her without getting completely choked up because after we had been you know, working with, we'd hosted several conferences, we were now branching out, we were doing international workshops in areas where there were particular issues or you know, problems. So for example, when we went to um, you know, Vietnam and worked with Animals Asia and the sanctuaries to you know, deal with you know, and talk more about not only conservation and care and husbandry, which is what we mostly focus on, but then like, you know, helping rehabilitate and work with animals that obviously had a really troubled, you know, background. And Elsa, she was a force to be reckoned. She was, she had a very sometimes gruff exterior and demeanor. You knew exactly where you stood with her, but you also always knew where you, she stood with the animals and the bears. And that was 100% behind them, that no matter what she would compromise to be able to help bears and the people that cared for them. And that was her whole goal. That was her life's work. Um, whether she was doing it as the keeper or when she switched full on into consulting and world to like the workshop and the conference you discussed, it just, it was her whole world and it was her, everything in her being, we were there to help her through that with, uh, do that with the bear care group. We had a lot of changes in, over the years and we sort of found our footing. We started off mostly in the US and then sort of started spreading out um, because Elsa wanted to ensure that we had that international perspective. And some of the things that were the most important to Elsa um, are really critical. So we talked a little bit about like, there's not a lot of overlap between my work with AZA and you know, work with you know, animal welfare groups. And Elsa did not care. And she was the one that taught me that that was acceptable and got rid of my preconceived notions because it didn't matter if you were from a circus, it didn't matter if you were from um, an organization on the other side of the world or an accredited zoo, she was going to help you if you wanted to help bears. Um, it, that was all there was to it. Regardless of her opinion, which she would likely share with you, as long as you wanted to help your bears, she was going to be there for you. And that same underpinning has led to me and how I approach things with consulting, but it also led to the very nonpartisan openness um, of the bear care. We are apolitical and again, nonpartisan that we want anybody that cares for bears uh, or animals to be able to come to our workshops, to reach out for resources and to know that they're going to find it there. And I can tell you, we have had people at our conferences on different sides with different opinions and they are not nonpartisan and they have not been apolitical and there have even been fist fights. We fix that and we try to make sure that all opinions get represented, that everybody gets to be professional and everybody gets their voice heard because there is no one right answer. There's all sorts of different ways of still getting to that, like we were talking about earlier, that way of that, that common ground of caring for the animals and in this case, the bears. And it was so important and it was the driving force that she was just relentless in ensuring that we spread this and work with groups around the world. Um, and because of her influence and involvement, I mean, we've been to multiple places in the United States. We've been to Romania, we've been to India, we've been to Vietnam, um, just really doing everything we can, hosting conferences and helping bears. And 
Um, several, five years ago, actually, we were actually planning the conference in Vietnam and Elsa had a routine check and ended up testing uh, positive for cancer. And it ended up being horrendously aggressive and we had way less time with her than we or the world deserved. And when we lost uh, Elsa, the mantle of leadership uh, fell to me and I have maintained it with the support of an excellent board who has been happy to uh, keep me in that position ever since. And we still try with some changes and, you know, we alter things and adapt to um, the newer world, like, you know, with social media changes and different welfare perspectives, but it's still the same core. It still bears first, but nonpartisan help everybody who wants to help bears. And it's always in, you know, her memory and everything all the little adages that she would tell us or, you know, like, let us know, um, you know, they're the core of everything that we, we still do. And so, you know, there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about her, the influence she had on my career, but how many people she's affected around the world the same way with that fierce, fierce protectiveness of, you know, bears and the people that love them and want to do best for them. And so, so that's, you know, really what we as the Bear Care Group continue to try to do um, as the founder and the president now was such a strong uh, team of people that, you know, respected Elsa and want to continue that work. We do continue to do so. It's been challenging with uh, the pandemic and we've been limited in what we can, but we still work. We switch to online uh, webinars until we can figure out when and where it's going to be safe to either have another conference or to follow up with one of our previous workshops, possibly in India. Um, we're looking for some other options. So we're still keeping the work going. We're still maintaining you know, our presence, um, still working with other groups uh, who have been sponsors. Um, and we have a lot of them around the world that you know continue to remain with us through all of this. And all of it is truly and honestly because of Elsa's uh, vision. Um, and I love the changes that we've been able to do. It's what keeps me going, making a difference in animals' lives, in people's lives, in organizations' lives, being able to help them. Um, and she was such a driving force in that. And the Bear Care Group is still such a big part of my life that, you know, I'm still glad to be part of it so many years later. Yes, thank you so much for sharing. And I would love to celebrate. I only met her once, as I mentioned, but she made a very deep impression on me. And I, and I you know, it would be wonderful to celebrate through this podcast, um, you know, the work that you all continue. And, and that is so important, right, to, to continue on that energy and on that fierceness uh, for animals and really standing behind the animals and doing what we can and coming together for that. And perhaps you can talk a little bit about the people that are involved in the group and you know the role of advisors because obviously with this podcast there will be a link to the bear care group and you can see some of the activities and you have rehabilitation advisors and and you do other aspects so perhaps you can talk a little bit about the people behind um, all the work that you're doing oh so the people while there have been many changes like over the years we still have so many folks that have stayed with us like all the way through um there's always you know that core team and oh my goodness without like you know the worker bees um and the people that are dedicated that also all bring their own skills and perspectives i mean that's what's really critical about it um because you have to, you, you know, everybody can't have, we love confirmation bias, but we can't all have the same perspective on things. Um, and, you know, Elson, while she was our, like, you know, founding president, um, you know, my background is obviously in animal care, is in animal welfare. I am a behaviorist, but also like, you know, uh, my master's was in like collection management and planning and leadership. Um, you know, my vice president, uh, Dr. Mindy Babbitts, uh, Vice President and Treasurer, she's been an animal caregiver for, you know, over 20 years as well. She's specialized in sloth bears, uh, particularly. She's also done, you know, pandas. She's traveled around the world with me. And whereas I can do, you know, the dynamic speaking and the leadership part without her organization and attention to the tiny details, you know, we never, ever would have gotten, you know, as far as we could have. So those skills are critical and have complemented you know, what we've been able to do. Dr. Heather Bacon, she's uh, been our veterinary advisor for so many years. Um, she's, I think, right now branching out and creating her own program. She's uh, out of the UK. She's been working, she'd worked with uh, Animals Asia. She's 
worked with um, the universities over in Europe at uh, the University of Edinburgh's uh, Royal School of Veterinary Studies. I mean, she consults and like me, but she has a fearlessness to her that I've always respected that has actually helped me be stronger in the external consulting because she's consulted around the world on health and welfare issues, usually with bears, but I know with other species and is always that dedicated, just ferocious advocate. Um, Angela Gibson, who currently is working with our social media and communications, she had been uh, a volunteer. And then when we were in New Jersey, she just had done such great job as that quiet, just solid, you know, background person. But she has stepped to the fore with her work with Denning and also zoo leadership and accredited zoos. But she's shown this amazing, um, you know, work with, you know, seasonality in bears where she's done that in situ bear care in zoos, where she's got all these examples and can help people out in ways. And she's actually kind of now, now taking the lead on our seasonality piece. Uh, she and Mindy have both been involved with the bear tag. Um, Angela and I are on the bear alliance together. I mean, so you get this kind of diverse background. And then recently we brought on uh, three new members. You can find their information as well on the website who are um, we're getting them shaped um, and they bring a different set of circumstances and background as well. And I encourage everybody, so I don't take all the time up here. I just don't want to read people's bios, but reading about them, get learning about what makes them special. Because we started looking for and figuring out that it's really important to fill in all those gaps, that we shouldn't have too much confirmation bias in the group, that we needed to have veterinary rehab fundraising background, somebody with an academic perspective, because all of these are going to help us be a better organization because it fills in all those gaps when we're making, um, you know, decisions. And we have several advisors. Uh, Summer, again, um, Gail Hedberg was actually one of the founders of the Bear Care Group, a, a dear friend, along with uh, Angelica of Elsa's. Gail is always going to be, even now, my go-to for anything for hand rearing of pretty much any species, but particularly carnivores. Angelica, um, also Tracy Lever, who's been with us from that very first time in California, they, if there's any rehabilitation questions, even if we're traveling around the world, they will take the four and step up with that. We get academic advisors, keeper advisors, exhibit design advisors. Um, Christina was actually on our board for a while before she uh, relocated and stepped down from directorship, but she's still an advisor and her background was grants and fundraising. So all of these things are so critical and all of these people, whether they're direct bear keepers or not, have been able to help us grow, help us reach our mission, um, and then help us reach and teach all of these people all around the world. And we couldn't do what we do um, without them. We're always looking for more advisors. We are always looking for you know other folks to join us on the board, um, but we also really focus on uh, folks, um, you know, that have specific uh, skill sets and backgrounds that the rest of us probably don't have. Yes, no, it is. I think it's wonderful. And I think it's such a great example of one of the, the phrases I always love is global collaboration, you know, for animals or for the planet, whatever our cause is. But this is such a great example of, you know, no one of us can do you know, all of these topics or, you know, just time-wise, but expertise-wise and how we all have to, you know, come together and, and how useful it is to have different perspectives or even though, you know, we can be supporting each other, we still, you know, want to ask critical questions and, you know, really, you know, question what we do and, and so on. So that's just really wonderful that you're giving this example of this huge network from all these different people from all around the world that are coming together for bears. And also on your website, which is with this podcast, a link, you have uh, different supporters. And perhaps you can talk to us a little bit as we are coming to a close of this podcast almost, like who are some of your supporters? And if people are listening and they want to help, you know, how can they do that? Um, well, we've always had uh, supporters. We have like individuals and organizations that have uh, donated over the years or contribute. So some examples like we uh, Polar Bear International, um, even when we when we host a conference, they always help sponsor and fund something. Even when we don't host a conference, they reach out and say, is there anything we can help you with, you know, financially spreading the word and the like. And we have folks from around the world that have been like this. 
um, you know, Hauser Bears, and then even the organizations, Animals Asia, we have, um, you know, Wildlife SOS, all these groups that we work with in Romania, within the UK. Um, I, 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 I wish I could like remember everybody's names right now. And I'm feeling very, you know, no on, the spot, I, on the spot, I can't, but like, these are the people that continue to always want to help us and support us, whether they're recognized names or organizations, they're less so, and they give, you know, still a set chunk and they help us out every year. And we always try to recognize that. We ensure that whether it's through, um, you know, speaking, recognition, social media, the supporters, we try to want, we want to make sure that people realize and recognize that, you know, every little bit counts. And it doesn't even have to be financial, time, willingness to help out, willingness to share bear care group posts and information, to post and comment and provide different perspectives. So there's different levels of support, whether it's the keepers that just keep, you know, the website and the Facebook posts active, um, whether it's, you know, the, the large global international organizations, you know, that we've gone and we've partnered with for like Animals Asia or, you know, Wildlife SOS over in India. And we've hosted and worked with workshops with them that have had regional impact. And then that's, it teaches us more because when you look, when you look at our board of directors, when you look at our supporters, we're not just one organization based in one place. We have diversity. And that diversity, both culturally, from our backgrounds, from our educations, I think is another step and piece that really helps us because we're always willing to listen, learn, and then teach. And again, as long as everybody's goal is making lives better for bears, we are there for them. And we couldn't do it without all the, the people, the groups, the organizations that help us through every single time. Wonderful. We're just, you know, celebrating them for and thanking them for doing that and also with this podcast there will be a link directly to how people and organizations can support the bear care group and whether it's through amazon smiles or any other way you know just check it out and see how you could potentially make a difference uh, for bears and perhaps you know in conclusion jay could you shares one more story, perhaps about bears or perhaps about the lions that nudged forward, um, you know, of, of you with animals that really uh, touch your heart. So, I mean, it, there's so many, and of course, you know, you get choked up and whatever else, and that's why I do this. Um, but just, you know, when you, when you can make a connection, there's, I don't know if you've, you've seen it, it was, so Monty Python, we know, made a couple of movies. Um, and after a fish called Wanda, there was a lesser known one called Fierce Creatures. Same yes. cast. Love the movie. One of my favorite movies of all time. I highly recommend it. But there's a little blurb in there where Jamie Lee Curtis, the corporate person, you know, she ends up, you know, getting in close contact with, you know, the gorilla and she comes out all in awe and she just talks, you know, she's like, and they're like oh, you made contact. And, you know, well, we're not going to recommend everybody anybody getting in contact with a full-grown gorilla, that sense of connection is, I think, what keeps us going through this. Why, for 30 years, starting off making almost no money and working multiple jobs and scraping by, that's, that's what does it. There has to be a reason for the passion. And, you know, you can be passionate for and about animals, but it always still comes down to that connection. And whether it's dog rescue or, you know, working with the animals that I've cared for for many, many years. And, you know, I'll tell you, it was in Romania. We went and we worked with the, the zoo there. We had uh, somebody who was helping us uh, collaborate. And so we set up a workshop on zoo grounds. And when we do this, I always do a training demonstration. And it actually works out really well because then Dr. Bacon, she comes along with me. And while I'm showing how quickly um, you can take a naive bear that's never been trained before and doesn't know me and teach it some behaviors, how much that benefits from medical and husbandry welfare. And Dr. Bacon always, Heather talks about that at the same time. And so I remember I was like, they were, the, the zoo was preparing for us to be there and my training was scheduled and they had this old, you know, cement and iron, um, you know, bear holding area and stuff. And it was going to be this big brown bear. And he had no name. I don't know what his name was. He was housed with several females and he basically went inside, whether he, it was because he got picked on or he picked on others and he was isolated that day. So he was who I was going to work with. And so we've got the whole workshop and conference. And um, I'd gone around to all these boxes of fruit that were you know, sitting out. And I picked out all the things I thought that a bear would love the most. And then I snuck into where you know, all our snacks were. And I stuffed my pocket full of things that I knew 
no matter what were going to work. I had peanuts. I had cookies. I had so many things that I knew would win a bear over. And I took a target stick that I had made. And so here's this bear. And for the first time when I worked with him, I sat there with a whole audience, the whole workshop, all of the zoo workers, everybody watching me, people taking pictures and recording. And I gave him a name and I named him Borscht. I don't know why, because it's definitely not Romanian, but I just named this bear Borscht. And when he wouldn't come out and everybody was watching and staring and I'm standing there with this target stick and this bear, I don't know. He poked his nose out after enough time and I threw a cookie. And I mean, he sniffed at it and the head came out and he sucked in that cookie. And then he looked at out this little cement doorway. And I'm like, come on, buddy. And I threw him another cookie. And so over the next half an hour, working with grapes, smashed fruit, peanuts, and cookies, um, this bear came out, sat in front of me, um, learned to target, and I was able to get him to open his mouth and to stand up fully just by following the target. All well, all these people were watching that knew I didn't know this bear. This bear had clearly never seen me a target stick or anything before. And in half an hour, Borscht learned to trust me that treats were gonna come when I asked him to do something and that he could do really simple behaviors and nothing bad was gonna happen to him. He was just gonna get rewarded for giving trust back. And you know, I smiled my whole way through that session. And meanwhile, Dr. Bacon talks about trust and, you know, Angela and Mindy and everybody else, anyone else that was there, our, you know, our supporters, our advisors were talking about, you know, the critical importance and how fast you can build trust using something so simple as food, you know, access to other areas, enrichment, and just building up that relationship and how important the relationship is. And so half an hour, you know, I built a relationship with a bear I'd never met before in my life. And as a result, I'll never, ever forget it. And he made such an impression on everybody. And that later on that day, we had put these big boxes of enrichment and threw things over the fence and burlap bags full of stuff. And all the bears there had this wonderful time. But we've got pictures of him. He's been posted on our website. He became the object that, you know, we were able to talk about, you know, trust, relationship building, training, learning, enrichment, medical care, husbandry, all of these things from this one bear being willing to trust me within the span of half an hour. And I'll never, ever forget him. I'm guessing none of those other people will either. And everybody can have a borscht, whether it's a bear, whether it's a tiger, whether it's an elephant, whether it's a poor little dog down at the shelter that just needs a friend, everybody needs a borscht. And I really, really hope that everybody finds that opportunity to find that in their lives and be able to, you know, provide it not only for the animals, but for themselves to find that connection um, and really it's world changing and it's life changing. It's why I do what I do after 30 years and still continue to do so. It's why so many of us do and are dedicated to improving the lives of animals is because of that connection that you know we can make that puts us in the rest of the world with these animals. Beautiful. That's what I got. I got you got borscht. I got worst and I, I agree. Everybody needs worst. So yeah, I love it. We'll definitely have to uh, you know, perhaps the podcast you know, graphic will have borscht on it. Who knows? But I will I'll see definitely if we can have... find a picture of borscht. That would yeah. be amazing. <laughs> yeah, we'll definitely have to see borscht now. And, you know, thank you so much again, Jay, for coming on to this podcast. I think, you know, we can dedicate this uh, together. We are dedicating this this podcast to Elsa Palsa. And, 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 and I just saw on the website these beautiful you know, quotes from her. Who are you and what can I do for you? Bears just need stuff and yep. bears do things for bear reasons. I just love yep. that. I love those quotes from Elsa. And thank you so much for shining a light on, on you and, you know, your career and how it has evolved on bear care and, you know, how people can get involved and, and the legacy that Elsa left. And, uh, and your work now at uh, Utica Zoo, which I really look forward to following. So thank you again so much, Jay, for coming onto the podcast. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I look forward to it. I do encourage everybody, you know, do what you can to make a difference, you know, locally, regionally, around the world. You know, look up the Bear Care Group, look at all the different ways you can sponsor us, both with assistance, you know, financially, any way that you think you can make a difference. Um, we're happy to help out. And I am always here to act as a mentor and to answer questions for anybody that's really, you know, struggling, trying to find their way or, you know, would just like some advice because 
Um, I know I was lucky enough to have Elsa and Lori and so many others throughout my career do it. Um, I look to individuals like you now to help me lead on a world basis, and I really want to be able to provide that opportunity for others. So thank you for giving me this opportunity and voice, and I'll look forward to talking to you again. Yes, thank you again so much, Jay, and for your you know openness and your vibrance and, and loving kindness that streams out in your work with and for animals everywhere and working with people. Thank you again so much for coming onto the podcast. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much again for a wonderful podcast, another end of a podcast here. And of course, as you know, well-being for you and your animals is too important not to get right. And at Animal Concepts, we help you care for animals and for yourself to be at your best to achieve excellence in animal care and welfare. And Pause is the first online platform combining human and animal well-being science and practice where you can get the education and tools you need so you and your animals can flourish. So if you feel inspired, follow the link in the podcast description to become a Pause member today. 